The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Kids, snap out of your Labor Day barbecue coma and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 373 with guests Brian Randall and Martin Woodward, recorded live Tuesday, August 19, 2008. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now, offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNRTV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com And now, the man who says a cubicle is really just a padded cell with a door, Carl Franklin! Thank you very much, and welcome to .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers. I'm Carl Franklin, your host. Richard is not going to be with me for the uh, for the intro today, but he will be here for the show, and it's going to be like this for the next three weeks or so while he is climbing Mount Everest. And I'm not kidding; he's uh, going to base camp with a whole bunch of .NET people, base camp one. So he's not summiting, but hey, come on, the guy's you know he's a developer. Uh, we're going to forego the traditional better know a framework and the email today because. Something very, very cool is happening that you really got to know about, which you could win stuff. I'm talking about a Tom Bin brain bag, the, the best bag for your laptop that was ever, ever invented, and a chance to win an all-expense-paid, well, okay, hotel, airfare, and admission expense-paid trip to Barcelona, Spain, to Tech Ed Developer 2008, November 10th through the 14th. You don't have to be from Europe to win this contest and to enter the contest. All you have to be is a .NET Rocks listener. If you go to .NET Rocks.com, you can either click on the big Barcelona party banner on the right, or you can just go to .NET Rocks.com slash Barcelona. And you'll have to register for the contest by uh, giving us a little bit of demographic information. See, that's what we do. We share that information as uh, sort of the, the in exchange for all of this great goodness. And we're going to you're going to answer a few questions. The most important question to us has to do with 
um, how many people listen to .NET Rocks when you download it. So let's say you download the show, you know, once a week or twice a week, and then maybe you share that with some friends, which we thoroughly encourage you to do. How many friends or other developers do you share that with? So if you've got a team of 20 and they all listen to it off of a network share or something, we want to know that because we're trying to get an ac- accurate number as to how many people are actually actually listening. So that's for us. The demographic stuff is for Microsoft, of course. And once you're registered, here's what you do. There's You just got to answer a question once a week. Every Tuesday, we're going to put up a new question. It's a simple question about a recent show. If you listen to the recent show, you should know the answer. Um, the people who get the answer right, we pick one randomly every week, every Tuesday for the last one. And that winner gets a free Tom Bin brain bag. Now, those weekly winners, we're going to do this for eight weeks. And so October 20th, Tuesday, October 20th, will be the final question. The winner of that last question will be in the pool and then... October 20th, Tuesday, October 20th, we are going to, after the weekly winner is drawn, we're going to take all eight weekly winners and randomly select one of those winners, and that person will get the free ticket to TechEd. Now, here's the deal. We know it's close. October 20th, it's coming up November 10th, so here's what we're going to do this year that's different. You can go to either this year's TechEd developer or next year's TechEd developer. Huh? Isn't that cool? So, you get your pick. If you want to take a year to, to uh, uh, get your you know plans and gear, go for it. If you want to go this year, you can do that too. So that's the .NET Rocks Barcelona TechEd sweepstakes. We hope that you uh, thoroughly enjoy that and tell everyone about it. And good luck with that. Also, the uh, fine folks in Infusion are still looking for talented individuals to both work in New York City and in Dubai. In New York, you can do SharePoint. They'll teach you. You'll get all sorts of great training. Uh, You can do all sorts of great financial stuff down there. In New York, if you qualify, they'll put you up in an apartment rent-free for a year. That's right. You can, on top of drawing a New York City salary, you don't have to pay rent. And trust me, rent is really, really high in New York City. Um, also, they have an office in Dubai that they're, they've picked, a, quite a, qu- picked up quite a few of .NET Rocks listeners and shipped them off to Dubai. From what I understand, they're having a great experience, and we're going to actually talk to some of them later on the show. Not, not today, but at a later time. Uh, and also, in New York, they're looking for people to do work on Microsoft Surface. So if you're interested in any of that, uh, send me an email, carl at franklins.net, and I will pass it along to the right people. Well, Richard, we have two esteemed guests today, Brian Randall and Martin Woodward. Brian, uh, both have been on .NET Rocks before. Brian A. Randall is a senior consultant with MCW Technologies, LLC. For over 20 years, Brian has been building software solutions and educating his fellow developers. He spends his time teaching Microsoft technologies to developers, working with new and emerging technologies like Visual Studio Team System 2008 and consulting worldwide for Fortune 500 companies like Microsoft, state and local governments, and small businesses. Brian enjoys helping people get the most out of their software. He does this through training for Pluralsight and speaking events such as VS Live, TechEd, and the PDC. In addition, Brian shares uh, through written word. 
He currently writes the team system column for MSDN Magazine. He's the author and lead instructor of Pluralsight's Applied Team System and Applied Windows SharePoint Services courses. You can reach Brian via his blog at mcwtech.com slash cs slash blogs slash Brian R. Somebody ought to shrinkster that. <laughs> and Martin Woodward is a senior software engineer at Team Prize and a Team System MVP. By day, he works as a Java developer, providing the cross-platform and Eclipse integrations to Team Foundation Server. By night, he hangs out in the Team System communities and helps out with his local .NET user groups in Northern Ireland. Being part of the only team outside of Microsoft to write a full client to the Team Foundation Server, Martin has a unique understanding into the inner workings of the product, which he likes to bore people with whenever possible. And I didn't say that. That's in his bio. You're just reading. I'm just reading here. <laughs> that was not meanness on the Carl Meister's part. When not talking or propping up a bar, nice. <laughs> you can find him over on his blog at woodwardweb.com. Welcome, guys. Thanks for having us again. You bet. What a bunch of troublemakers we have on this show. I know. This is going to be a hard show. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I made my bio informal because I thought Brian's would be abuse about his hair, and then you give Brian's uh, formal <laughs> bio out. There you go. I feel, I feel stupid now. <laughs> I would never say anything bad and negative about Brian's hair. Werewolves of London! Ah, <laughs> A bonus prize to any reader that can find a YouTube clip of Brian Harry, uh, Brian Randall appearing on the on a, on a rock video from the early eighties. Oh, right. we're not going there. That's nah, nice. That. The eighties were scary for my, my hair and me. So yeah. in Tech Ed in June, I was at I think it was the MSDN influencers party with a bunch of the Strange Loop folks, and I saw Brian there and introduced him to everyone, and I said, "Now." The thing you got to know about Brian Randall is if he sees Stephen Forte, he will hug him and lift him off the ground. And everybody had a laugh, and then Forte walked in the room. The timing was impeccable. Yeah, and I think I got Forte almost airborne that night. Oh, yeah. He's just a little guy, really. He is, but he's wiry. He's wiry. you got to watch him. <laughs> so we are talking about Team System 2008 today. It's a wonderful thing. We love it. And it's a, this is a much-delayed show, because we were talking about doing this back in May. Right. Have we even talked about Team System 2008 yet on the show? Not really, no. Huh. What's up with that? Well, then there's a lot to talk about. I mean, I mean, this is an interesting thing. So if we go back to just 2008 shipping, because what's interesting is last week, SP1 shipped. Right. For, for both you know, Visual Studio Core and the Team System family. But if we just go back in the Wayback Machine to, I don't know, let's say, I'm thinking November of 2007, right, that's when they shipped the 2008 release, which is, of course, all this great stuff that I'm sure you've had guests talk about. But if we think about VSTS, I think what we'll do is maybe I'll talk a little bit about the client, Martin, and you can talk about the server. Yeah, sounds good. So on the client, you know, VSTS, what is that? So Team System, we have this suite of advanced tools to help you, in, you know, improve your software development practices. So we've got four editions now. We have the development edition, the database edition, the test edition, and everybody's favorite, the architecture edition. And the bottom line is, in 2008, these tools gained a lot of new features and a lot of spit and polish. For example, 
Uh, if you look at the development edition, we got new code analysis rules. We got the performance tools got a great facelift. In fact, it's kind of one of those things where you go, God, I wish that was what shipped in 2005 because it's much easier to use. Uh, for example, let's say you're doing performance analysis of an application. Well, one of the problems you have is how do I find the slow areas of my application? Well, what they do is you run this profile against your application. You go through your, you know, say, a manual test. And one thing you can do is click this button that looks like a little fire icon, and it does what's called hot pathing. It finds the hot path through your application. So things like that are just you know, big improvements to the overall product. Test Edition got support for AJAX uh, behind the scenes, so when you have a website that's doing a background load of a web page, you can test that now. Um, they added top-down system design and architecture. And then the Database Edition, because it shipped off-cycle from the original version, it didn't get a lot of sugar, but it is now in this installation, so you can just install everything together. And it, this is the thing, you know, people look at 2008 on one hand and say, oh, it's a, a minor release, but they did a lot of work all over the place. And then I think, Martin, you talked about the server. There's even a, just a ton of stuff there. Yeah, I think on the server, I mean, that had, you know, more noticeable improvements. There's a lot of performance work went in. Obviously, Microsoft themselves are, you know, rolling out Team Foundation Server across the board. They they are starting to, to eat their dog food with, with Team Server. Yeah, I mean, they always were inside of developer division, you know, the team that do Team Foundation Server have always run on Team Foundation Server for a long time. Um, And in fact, uh, so Team Foundation Server provides, you know, the collaboration functionality for everyone. So it's like the the work item tracking, version control, and then, you know, a SharePoint portal. And then all that stuff stored in a SQL database. And then they did a clever thing, which was to make it automatically feed data into a warehouse that they provide for you on the on the database. So then you've got a bunch of reporting functionality as well. Now, um, the work item tracking part of, of Team Foundation Server, that's actually like the oldest part of the product. That's um, based on an internal thing called Product Studio, which, you know, the Microsoft people use, and they've been using that for years, you know, and they just kind of got that into TFS, and then uh, version control was written from the ground up the teams have been dog-fooding this, and then they've been rolling out across other teams, so bringing on, say, parts of the Office team and the rest of DevDiv um, and, and moving out across all Microsoft. Obviously, Microsoft's got places like Microsoft IT, which um, right. you know, they're more like a normal IT part of a company and do do applications like expenses systems and you know procurement systems, that sort of thing. Um, and they've been huge adopters of uh, Team System and Team Foundation Server. So, so is the migration experience, say, from, uh, goodness, I don't even want to say source safe, but from <laughs> other source control systems to TFS relatively painless? Huh. <laughs> okay, I hit a button Why there. Why don't you start with that one? Nice, nice <laughs> chuckle. Thank you, Brian. So um, from source safe, it's relatively painless. Um, important thing to remember and a lot, this is what a lot of people run into trouble with. Team Foundation Server is completely new and um, it's, got, it's different from every system you've used in the past. And a lot of people forget that, you know. Um, as, as I keep telling my wife, just because something's different doesn't mean it's wrong. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so she, um, yeah, so uh, TFS, when you're migrating, from source safe, there is a tool there that can do the migration. Um, but if you've done sharing, for instance, um, Team Foundation do, Server doesn't support sharing uh, or pinning. You know, it, it has proper branching and proper merging. So if you've used those features a lot, then you'll run into a bit of trouble. 
Also, the way the way the import works, and the way lots of these import utilities work is, TFS is. Um, if you remember, SourceSafe was really like bad at time zones and checking dates and things. I'm trying to forget. Yeah, and so um, Team Foundation Server really isn't. It's really anal about recording the time at which something happened based on the server time, and then it you know converts it to your local time. But the uh, the problem there is when you do an import, you actually see like you know a million check-ins within four seconds, and the comment being, you know, imported from originally checked in by Martin on the third of September two thousand and three or something like that. So what we often advise people when they, when they want to migrate is um, don't. <laughs> yeah, do they really want to bring in all their history? Whether they want to use the opportunity of going to a completely new source control and just take, you know, um, a bent, just take a snapshot and just move that in and maybe clean it up on the way in as well, so it's actually in a nice structure. You often find people from Source Safe or even other tools, you know, like Clearcase or Subversion or something like that. They have a particular source tree in their system that was set up to go around limitations in the tool or to, you know, support processes that don't exist anymore. So I often, you know, the best thing is to do a snapshot and move it over. But there are import tools if you really want to do them, but, you know, avoid that if you can, I think, is the... Uh, it's a, it's the all, it sounds like it's almost not worth it. You know, Richard, it really is, you know, I've dealt with multiple customers, and I had one as recently as June. Um, and we sat down, and, and fundamentally, number one, they wanted to improve their overall development process. That's why they're going to team system. And... You know, first, their initial thing was, we want to migrate our source safe database. And I said, well, how long have you been using it? And they go, at least five years. Mm-hmm. And I'm going, you know, the problem with this is like anything. When you, like if you have a workroom, a five-year workroom is going to have a bunch of detritus laying around. It's going to be kind of a mess. It's not going to be perfect. You now have this chance to move to this great new system that is actually, as Martin put it, a proper version control system and beyond. Do you really want to import things as this, or would you like to take this chance to be able to take advantage of things like proper branching and merging and have concurrent development that actually has some sanity in it? And once we did this, they were so happy. What you do is I tell customers, look, if you have SourceSafe, make sure you upgrade to the latest version, make sure it's patched, make sure it's current. Keep that over in the corner. Stop active development, and let's reset up your source code in a nice team project or two or three, depending upon your organization, Get it set up nice and neat. And they were so happy. I got an email from the other day, and they said, you know, this is heaven compared to what we're at. And they can always go back to SourceSafe if they want to look at that history. But it's like, when you talk to teams, you really say, do you really go back two years and look at the history? No. They're almost always looking at the tip or the previous version of their code. Right. And so why put all that pain onto something you'll almost never do? Which, when you're migrating, you want to make sure you migrate, you know, at that point you migrate when you, you know, don't just do it in the middle of a release. Do it at a particular convenient point, which is what the Microsoft guys are doing, you know. That's why they're adopting it all across the board straight away. They roll, you know, roll it out as it's convenient for each team. Hmm. But they, So they're doing it when they, when they ship a version, that's when they would switch? Yeah, or, you know, internal ships, you know what I mean? Not necessarily a public ship. Right, but, but like a code complete When you get to the end of an iteration, you don't often go back before that iteration on the history. Unless you're trying to find out who did something stupid, you know. Exactly. Yeah, it's mostly a blame tool. Being it's a show able to blame like utility, that. right? Yeah. Yeah, there's easier ways of blamestorming. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't it Joel Semenyuk who wrote a show blame tool? Yes. 
Yeah. The great show blame. But he wrote that for Team System. Right. Well, and it's integrated in, funnily enough, <laughs> in uh, 2008, that's uh, actually part of the product now. So you can right click on a, you know, a file and say annotate. Yeah, that's a politically that. sensitive way of saying blame. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you can say annotate and it'll give you the code and who did what changes in it. You know, you can look at the comments, say, oh, yeah, checked in just before lunchtime or just after a long liquid lunch. That'll be why it was broke. Yeah. Yep. Friends don't let friends code and drink. Is there anything that people are using Team System for that they shouldn't be using it for? Or they're trying to use it for something? Is there anything you shouldn't use it for? So, for me, um, Team System prefers, and Team Foundation Server especially, prefers to be in a connected mode, which is great for people like banks, you know, and, and insurance companies and, you know, enterprises. Um, because when you go to check a file out, um, or edit a work item, the first thing it does is talk to the server and say, do I, have, do I still have permission to check this file out? And, you know, um, and so it works in a very online mode. You can get it to work offline for a short period of time, but it's not, you, know, you have to then resync, and it's not particularly pleasant. People who um, work off-site a lot, like uh, consultants and stuff, um, they're going to have a harder time using Team Foundation Server you know, if they can't always get to the repository just because it doesn't work as well that way. Something like subversion for source control, you know, works in an offline mode. TFS works in an online mode. Other things as well, um, TFS prefers you to know who you are um, and it prefers to be hooked into Active Directory, so you need a valid Active Directory user account for everyone, which is uh, great, again, internally in organizations, but if you're trying to do something like... Um, you know, SourceForge, for instance, uh, or the Coplex guys, they had to do quite a lot of custom work to make TFS work to support open source projects because of, uh, because of the infrastructure. It's more designed for enterprises. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's, I think, a good point Martin brings up. You know, it's definitely designed for, we'll use the term enterprise, but that could be a, a five-man team working in the same office. It does, let's be clear, it does support great remote, remote capabilities, for example, you can set up a proxy server for a remote location, and people will get great performance in working with source control. But it does require an active connection, whereas a lot of people in the open source community working on you know, some of those operating systems or things out there will work completely disconnected, and then when they go to check in, they do a, you know, a merge with their code. And to be very clear, you know, TFS supports you know, check-in, merge operations, but it also supports a more traditional lock and edit type of checkout. So it's kind of fighting its, its, its legacy in that it does have to support a lot of the source-safe metaphors, but it's also trying to move forward and support large distributed architectures. But it doesn't definitely, you know, I think as Martin's pointed out, support that full disconnected lifestyle that a lot of people lead who are, say, one-man consultants or large distributed teams that don't have a centralized office. I would that call that is, the subversion model, the really yeah, disconnected kind of approach. Yeah, subversion, um, is it, wasn't it Git is what they're using now for the Linux kernel? Yeah, Git or Mercurial or one of the distributed source control systems. Right. You know, and so the, the good thing is TFS knows what, I have to say, it's, it's not being too schizophrenic. It's focused on its core audience at this point. It's not like saying, we're going to try and be everything to everybody. But it is, you know, very feature-rich and does support distributed development very well. But it does want a network. And just a footnote, you know, Martin is correct. It does prefer and is much happier in an Active Directory environment. But those people who are crazy and have too much time on their hands can use it in a workgroup mode. I had a, a customer who 
because of various issues, did not have Active Directory installed yet. And so for about six months, they managed the users manually in workgroup mode, over 60 users. Um, so it can be done, but wow. not recommended. Okay. Yeah, but you do need a, you know, there is a Windows account associated yeah. with it. And exactly. It uses Windows authentication, single sign-on, which is, is good for a lot of companies, single sign-on authentication. But for, you know, if you're managing user accounts and you want them to be lightweight, an Active Directory or a Windows account isn't particularly lightweight. You know, it's more than just a record in a table somewhere. Yes. Right. Yeah, but... One of the problems as well that people coming from, say, like a Subversion background have with a source control part of TFS is um, they're used to all the files being writable locally. And, you know, the people who've, got, who've had source safe are used to the files being read-only locally. Um, in TFS, the files are read-only locally. Um, but if you want to edit that file, you have to tell the server, I'm checking it out now. One of the ways it gets these great performance benefits that Brian talked about over a wide area network um, is the server remembers what versions of files you've got and which ones you have checked out. And so if you don't tell the server you're doing something like checking out a file, you know, if you just made, made it um, read-write and made a change to yourself, um, if you then said uh, get latest, it wouldn't overwrite your local file because as far as it's concerned, you already had, you know, the version that's latest. You wouldn't have messed with it without telling it. So, um, you know, a lot of the problems I find in companies are people who are trying to use ways of working from, all, you know, other systems and not really spending the time to get to know the ins and outs of TFS. Um, but once you use it, it's a great tool, you know, very, very fast. We, I mean, it was in the company that um, moved from SourceSafe to TFS, and um, I remember to do a, a get latest of code over, you know, took two and a half hours. Ouch. <laughs> so, so, it was over a wide area network, so they were crazy for using it there. But, yeah. um, and, and it went down to, I think it was, it was, it was like seven seconds or something on an average day, you know. And that was without the TFS proxy server that Brian talked about. Let's get back to the sort of the list of uh, features that, are new in in uh, Team Server starting on the server side. What's what's new in two thousand eight on on Team Foundation Server? So probably the biggest thing that was new was the build system in two thousand eight. Um, again, it's one of those things as Brian said. You kind of wish it had been like this originally, but you know, there's only enough hours in the day. Right. Uh, two thousand eight's got a, a proper build system. Um, it supports continuous integration. Remember last time I was on the show with you, right. we were talking about continuous integration using cruise control and things yeah. like that. TFS has continuous integration out of the box now. You just right-click on a build and say, you know, I want it to run every time there's a check-in or okay. I want it to run daily, nightly, you know, whatever you want. It's, it's all built in there. Um, and that build system is also more flexible. Uh, you know, if you're doing continuous integration, so say you're building on every single check-in, those builds really mount up really quickly, and you have to manage them. And that was all, that was actually quite a pain. I remember with Cruise Control and CruiseControl.net, that was a bit tricky. You know, you had to go in and manually delete them on the server. In TFS, you just um, you can set up retention policies. You can say delete uh, failed builds after you know five of them because you only want the past five failed builds. You're not going to go back any further than that to, to blame somebody. Right. Or um, give me, you know, keep the last ten good builds. Um, but you can mark an individual build. Say you had a, say you released 
a build, mm-hmm. uh, release it to QA or to a, a real person, mm-hmm. to customers, mm-hmm. then you would you, know, you can right-click on the build. Oh, and this is all inside Visual Studio. You can right-click on the build and say you know, keep forever um, and change the build quality to released, and you can quickly look down and say, oh, yeah, that was the released build. Double-click on it, and you can go and actually you've got all the binaries there that have been archived on the server for you automatically, again, by the server. Nice. As you can go and pull out version 1 that you shipped to some customer, uh, you know, that you'd forgotten about. It's good. Across the board, there was lots of performance improvements and things, um, but but mainly, yeah, it was uh, the build stuff that was improved. Hmm. As I said, all this stuff is in is in SQL Server and feeds the data into SQL Server. So uh, that the reporting side and the integration between work item tracking and version control that's really where TFS is is you know blows everything else out of the market because. When you check in code, it's associated to a work item. And then when you do a build, you know from a build which check-ins were associated with this build and which work items were fixed, which bugs, you know, features, requirements were all solved as part of this build all automatically. So uh, does that mean cruise control is now unemployed? No, it, it depends. I mean, I wrote the, uh, the integration between TFS and cruise control and, and the Java version, you know, cruisecontrol.net and cruise control. Right. Oh, I don't um, think so. I think people are going to be using that for a long time. Yeah. If build systems are normally these Heath Robinson contraptions of things, and if it's working, then yeah, don't why mess touch it? it? Right. <laughs> um, I mean, once you, once you move to Microsoft's build system, you do get that feedback of, da- you know, of data going back in, so you get the close the loop in terms of feedback. But Cruise Control can do a perfectly good job, and, you know, that would I would move to using team build with new projects or maybe, um, as you know, as you want into update a build process. But there's no hurry. You can certainly put your version control and work item tracking into TFS and get a lot of cost savings without having to go to the expense of rewriting your build system. By going forward, if I'm, if I'm setting up a new dev environment or a new project, I probably would just go straight with the team system solution. No, absolutely. I mean, that's, and, you know, one of the things to be clear... We have customers that move sometimes just to say version control because they're they're so tired of source safe. They really want reliable, rich, and robust version control system, and so they move to TFS. But sadly, the real value proposition for TFS is using things together. Where you get the best value is that you use version control plus work item tracking to drive your work, and then you link that with build because that drives all the reporting and that gives you all the value at the end of the day. I mean, every little piece gives you value. But if you can use work items, build, and version control together, that's what you're paying for. You're getting this holistic system. And my, all Microsoft tools have always been like that, and and even architectures that are that are fundamental, such as the Entity Framework. We were talking about this just the other day. You know, the the the, the Entity Data Model is sort of key to a lot of different technologies and snuggles up nicely to a lot of other Microsoft products. So, yeah, I think in 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 terms of ALM tools. Microsoft are actually reasonably, you know, open. Um, if you compare it with, say, some of the stuff from IBM or Borland, then at least TFS, it, it has this customization part. Again, like Microsoft, you know, Microsoft build platforms all the time. Um, and so you can customize the process and make it work how you want. You don't have to follow the process that ships with the tool. Uh, you can also make the server, to a certain extent, work how you want, and you can hook in... Um, you know, other build systems in there if you want to. So, yeah, it, it's fairly open, but like you say, like all Microsoft stuff, it's always tastier when you take the whole lot together. 
You're listening to .NET Rocks from .NET Rocks.com. This is Carl. I have a message from our sponsor, Telerik, who wants you to know about the best way to learn using new dev tools and technologies. Well, is it reading manuals, watching videos, playing with sample code? How about all of the above? So Telerik recently launched their new interactive trainer tool to help you effectively learn all the Telerik products in your own pace. The Telerik Trainer is a slick WPF app that combines a video player with synchronized highlights, a table of contents for topical navigation, and a context-sensitive code launcher. While playing the narrated videos, you'll see a code button light up at a relevant section. Click the button, and you'll open the respective file from the provided project directly into Visual Studio. No more searching for code while watching a training video. This is indeed innovation in training. They're always releasing new tutorials for all the Telerik products, so don't waste any more time and download this amazing new training tool now at Telerik.com, T-E-L-E-R-I-K. And as you know, when it comes to developer tools, it's not just about great products, but also about reliable support and effective training materials, and that's exactly what our friends at Telerik have done. Check it out. Now let's get back to the show. So uh, maybe change gears a bit here. Uh, anything special about the various versions of, of Studio in 2008? And, and while we're at it, I'll just put a sideline in, which is, does anybody buy the Architect Edition? <coughs> I think let's, that is a no. Let's, let's do a marketing answer first. <laughs> you know, Microsoft is always trying to provide the best possible tools for the best possible situations. With P system 2008 Architecture Edition, you have some great modeling tools for doing SOA. Okay, I, I can't do it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the problem. You know, I, I wrote with Rocky Laka, we wrote one of the first articles on the team architecture tools back in 2004. At the time when they were building the first release, I believe they really knew what they were doing. The problem is they got caught up in a particular type of development style it was focused on SOA. It was focused on the current tooling. And let's just say that their grand vision didn't deliver what everybody wanted. And while there was some promise in the tools, and while for a couple of customers out there, I'm sure they were really happy because you know, Microsoft does try and listen to their customers. Unfortunately, I think this time they listened to a couple of really large customers, and a majority of the Microsoft space said, I can't use these tools. They don't deliver the value I need. And then what happened was, they didn't keep pace with all the other tool teams at Microsoft. They didn't have you know, the little artifacts that go on the diagrams. They didn't have them, for example, for WCF, for, for all the complex services. So it, just, it wasn't useful for a lot of shops. And so let's be honest, a lot of people weren't exactly ecstatic. So no, I don't think there's very few, many people who go and buy the Architecture Edition. Um, that said, just to give a little plug for what's coming, Microsoft has reevaluated how they do architecture tools in team system and if you take a look at the Rosario CPP that's out on the net right now from Microsoft it's a preview uh, but it shows that they're, re- they're bringing back UML in a big way as well as some great new designers that they showed off at TechEd that aren't available yet but are coming they're really doing architecture I think the way a majority of the people want it so UML is coming back as well as some great other types of designers and modeling tools and so, you know, that SKU is going to be better. It's going to have a better value for people. Where people get really excited with Team System on the client is definitely with the, the dev tools, the code analysis, the performance tools, uh, the web testing tools, and then the database tools. If you do SQL Server, it's really hard to not want to have what we call Data Dude. 
I mean, I think that fundamentally is what drives a lot of people is data in their applications, and data really helps if you do SQL Server 2000 or 2005. Um, and on that note, 2008 support is coming this fall in what's called a 2008 GDR, which will bring SQL Server 2008 support to DataDude, which gives you things like schema compare, uh, the ability to do data comparisons, uh, database unit testing, um, as well as the ability to integrate with Team Build. For people who've um, never heard the term DataDude before, let's define that whole big name. So, so let's so in the client in Microsoft, the way they restructure the the product. If you want their ALM tools for the client, that high-end is what's called Team Suite. Team Suite is made up today of four pieces, developer, tester, architecture, and the database edition. Well, this database edition originally wasn't part of Team System. It's something that a few people at Microsoft thought would be a great idea. One of these people was a gentleman named Gert Drapers. Have you guys, you guys had Gert on the show? Yeah, we had Gert and Cameron Skinner on together to talk when DataDude first shipped. That's right. That's right. So... The story goes, and this comes from Gert and the team, is that when they were pitching this to management, and ultimately this manager at the time was Eric Rutter, who at the time was, I believe, the senior vice president of application and tools platform or some you know, great title like that. And Eric Rutter, for a lot of people who don't know, was a data guy. He actually worked on FoxPro years back. So they're pitching this to Eric, and Eric, the light bulb went on above his head and said, oh, I get it. This product is for the data dude. It's for that developer who spends a lot of time with databases but is not a DBA. Right. This person who writes Sprocks, sits and writes data access code, basically lives, breathes, and eats the data code. And that's what this tool is for. It lets you do version control of your database. It does database unit testing, schema, data compare. It basically lets you put your database under control like the rest of your source code. It's a that, great That tool. for me is the biggest thing is can I actually check in my scripts the same way the devs do? Well, it's even better because what they did, they one step further, right? Because a lot of people, I mean, Richard, I'm sure you've been doing this, and I've been doing this for years. We would do various scripts we would dump from SQL and check them in manually. Yeah. Then there was this kind of, you know, half-baked implementation in the studio where you could do some check-ins. But what we have now is not only can I check in things, I check in things at a very atomic level, right? Tables, indexes, constraints are all individually shredded into files so we can do checkups. I can be working on the table structure, and Richard can be doing index tuning, and we're not going to step on each other. It's just, it's, it's just pure, well, I could say it, but I, it's a family show. Um, it's a wonderful thing. Oh, no, you could say it. It's pure sex, baby. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, wildly compelling to actually make the, that database developer a full-fledged member of the team in that sense. And then, of course, the challenge with, I find with databases, and I think most people run into, is... You can't just replace the code. There's a bunch of data that needs to be preserved, so we're always doing deltas. It's always a set of scripts that modify the database for the next version of the app. One of the um, great features in the, in this new GDR is the um, when you're when you're changing the database schema, it, it kind of remembers what the intent was. You know, I I want to add a column or I want to rename something. Um, and it tries to preserve that when it promotes your schema changes to that system. You know, it'll go look at what the schema is currently, do a compare, and then, and then you know, try to do those deltas rather than just taking the table into a temporary table, you know, adding columns and moving that sort of thing. Right. Uh, they've even made those. You need to get Gert Drapers on the show and, and talk to you about the new version because it's 
it's just some stuff you'll just love, Richard. The, you can even redistribute this little binary that they give you to do these changes, and you can give it to your customer, you know, and um, you, know, you, you call them and they say, have you modified my scheme, you know, the schema? No, 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 we never, we never touch the database. You know, yeah, right. So the big you lie. You send them a little tool and it gives you the schema, you know, comparisons, uh, and go, look, yep, you've changed it, and, you know, you can, or as part of an installer, um, it'll automatically generate you the deltas to move from version one of the database schema to version two of the database schema, that sort of thing. It's just great stuff. Yeah, it's exciting. And, you know, I don't know that we're there yet, but my ultimate vision is being able to go back to a given version, say, oh, let's revert back to version two, and you're going to rewrite my data changes to go the other way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Not today, but, you know, we can dream so, uh, any, I mean, what version should people be buying here? I, I happen to, since I'm doing so much web testing these days, I'm loving the test edition. But uh, any particular opinions as to what versions folks should be buying? Well, I mean, right, the, the fundamental issue is, let's just throw money out the window because, I mean, when you look at the price tags, it's, it's just, you know, sometimes overwhelming. But number one, people have to look at what do they do. You know, where do you spend your time? And if you spend any time with SQL Server database, it's hard not to want data, dude. Um, the developer tools are compelling, but you have to be honest with those. Will you use them? I mean, having those performance testing tools are awesome if you're going to use them. But some people, they, they still got to write the code. They're not even at the point of doing the performance testing. So will they get the value? Um, so I start with number one, if you do databases, it's got to be data, dude. If you do any type of ASP.NET web development, it's hard not to want the test skew. But the problem is, once you buy two, you get the whole team suite, and that's the fundamental issue there. You know, can you live with just one? And I think a lot of people find it hard if they're a, a multifaceted developer. If you just write code every day, the developer tool is probably the best one because you get the code analysis tools, you get the performance tools, and you get the code metrics tools, um, as well as things like code coverage. Um, so that's my opinion, Martin. Yeah, I mean, the test to skew is very good value. And I think it's, you know, the stuff we've been showing off that's in Rosario, it's just going to get better and better value as time goes on. Um, the developer skew, currently, I tend to think of it as team edition for lead developers. You know, it's um, the performance testing stuff is not stuff for every single developer on the team currently. It, you know, does all the time. Um, whereas writing some of the testing stuff, maybe more people do. Depends on the organization as well. You know, if you're a smaller company, then you've really got to watch how much these tools cost you because, you know, you haven't got much mon that much money in the pot. Sure. But for larger companies like a big insurance company or, you know, big banks and things, uh, if they can, you know, if you can get Team Suite for everyone, which uh, compared with the tooling, again, compared with comparative tooling, it's actually, you know, cheaper, um, then you don't get too bothered with skew hell, you know. It's a bit like Vista. Should I pick Vista Business or Vista Business Pro or whatever, I know. However right. many SKUs there are. If you can afford the ultimate, if you can afford Team Suite for everyone, then get it because um, more and more value is getting added to it. And uh, people just use stuff. When you start seeing it out in the team, it's a bit like the work item side. Um, you know, version control work items are really well integrated. Once people start seeing it's really well integrated and easy, then they'll just start adopting bits of process, you know, and, and suddenly you get people who would never look at the process manual when it was sat going dust on the shelf. They'll suddenly start demanding a work item. Yeah, I need a work item. I need a bug to work on this bit of code and stuff like that. The same is true with the testing side. If the testing tools are available to them, uh, and remember unit testing, that went into Visual Studio's standard, is it, Brian? I can't oh, no. 
Pro, yeah. It went into like a non-team edition of Visual Studio, the basic version of testing, unit testing. Once you give these tools out to people, people start, you know, writing little test harnesses as a test, writing little, rather than writing a little main, you know, they would, they would actually write a little unit test to do it and build up quality and, you know, it's, it's great. It, it really improves the general quality of your team much more than you can just address, you know, in the one or two value points, version control and work item tracking and reporting and the build. They can probably sell you the team additions, you know, even though that just comes part of TFS, which you can actually, if you wanted to just talk to TFS, you could buy um, a client access license to TFS and just use that from a normal Visual Studio without one of these fancy team editions if you really wanted. It's Yeah, it's interesting to see the balance there of, of how people do development, because then also you've got the Express editions of Studio as well and, and what features they've got there. There's a, definitely a culture that says everybody should be doing testing no matter what, so shouldn't the test suite be available everywhere? And the, one of the problems, I mean, one of the downsides of the architecture skew last time, which hopefully they'll address, is um, if you wanted to like go and read, you know, an architecture model, then you had to have the architecture version. You couldn't read it as a developer because they, you know, the, the splitting into SKUs happened really late in the day in 2005. Right. So um, yeah, yeah, it, it's been designed as a as a comprehensive suite, um, but you know, by all means, buy one of the editions. But do look at that that um, team suite price if you can if you can justify it. Uh, yeah, maybe we just have to dig into licensing a bit. I know I've got an email from folks where we sort of, where we glaze over licensing and say, this is important because it's not cheap, this product. So should we, yeah. can we talk through the model? Anybody willing to take this on? I'll, I'm happy to do it. I have to do it all the time with my customers. It's right. just not my favorite things. <clears throat> so first of all, standard disclaimer, Brian Randall is not an authorized Microsoft licensing specialist, and therefore any advice he provides is subject to this disclaimer. In other words, check with your licensing specialist. Nice. 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 Very good. You know, you're good at this marketing speak stuff here. Uh, I know. I think you got another career ahead. Yeah. Don't kid it. It's called keeping my rear end out of the sling. Thank you very much. And are there actually Microsoft licensing specialists, or are they just mythical? No, they actually do exist. It's just finding them. Um, <laughs> it's a, a two-step process. Because they're very, very busy. Yeah, I could actually find a, a, a couple emails we could post, although they'd probably kill me. But anyway, so let's just step back and understand what happened in the 2005 era. For years, Microsoft sold us, and I say us, the developer community at large, large and small companies, this notion of MSDN subscriptions. Give us some money, we'll give you the goodness. And the top of the tier goodness was MSDNU, or Universal. I love right? Universal. Yep. It was goodness. I mean, I bought it for a couple of years myself until I got my MVP and we became a partner. Real simple. You give us about, I'm going to go from memory, about $2,400 U.S. retail, although discounts did apply for volume. And for a year, you got lots of CDs and DVDs on the door. You got MSDN downloads. You got everything. It was a smorgasbord of goodness. Now, fundamental issue there, a lot of people in buying this, we're misunderstood about some of the licensing. For example, for a long time, you were not allowed to use Office to write proposals, to write resumes. The only thing you were supposed to be able to use Office for was the ability to program Office. So it's kind of funny there, but ignoring the licensing details about people shouldn't reusing it for production, it was a good value for developers. If you followed the rules, you were getting what you needed, the tools to write stuff and the tools to test. You had the operating systems, you had the test tools, everything was happy. So Microsoft said, you know what, we want to become 
a player in the ALM, the Application Lifecycle Management Space. To do that, we're going to have to build a new business unit. We're going to have to spend a lot of money. If we're going to spend a lot of money, Microsoft, you've got to make money. And the way to make money is to charge more. So they said, let's rethink how we do this. We're going to add a whole new set of technologies, a whole new server, Team Foundation server. We're going to a whole new set of client tools, all the Team Suite tools. This is brand new stuff. And we're going to have to pay the price sometimes, so let's just do it right away. And what they said was, look, if you want the existing tools the way they are up into Visual Studio Pro level, where these new tools did not exist, you can continue to get that, except it's now called something different. It's called Visual Studio 2005 Professional with an MSDN premium subscription. So two things happen there. Number one, they're raising the Visual Studio brand up. That's now more important than MSDN. And number two, there's no longer MSDN Universal. Okay, everybody with me? Yeah. Okay, great. I wish I was. (laughs) (laughs) It's simple. They basically said, no longer do you have MSDN Universal. We have Visual Studio Pro plus MSDN Premium. That's the same thing, just different name. In fact, we're going to lower the price on that. They dropped the price a couple hundred bucks. The problem is people said, okay, great, but what about this new stuff? I want that. And they said, oh, we got a deal for you. The idea, they say, is you have a choice when it comes to the client tools. You can buy one of the role-based SKUs, which at the time there were three, now there's four, and that will cost you retail about $5,000. However, if you want two or more of these SKUs, you can buy what's called Team Suite and get everything for just under 11000 These are suggested retail prices. No one should pay retail. Okay, people started to freak out. And Microsoft said, well, that's what it's going to be. But they said, look, we're giving you all this value. On the server, they said, well, what about the server? Microsoft said, well, you have to pay for that. But wait a minute. Don't I get it as a developer? No, you have to pay for it. This is actually the interesting part. They sold the server for ridiculously cheap for the amount of value it provides. It right. only costs retail about $2,700 U.S. However, because it's a server product, which is unusual for developers, they're not used to thinking this way, not only do you have to buy the server, you have to buy client access licenses. Client access licenses retail for about 495 U.S. However, if you have one of those team role editions that you spent 5000 for, they're kind enough to kick in a license. If you buy Team Suite, you get a license. Anybody who reads and writes to the server, and Martin can talk about the change in 2008, but anybody who reads and writes to the server has to have a client access license. So if you want to set up, say, a team of five developers, it is quite expensive. So Microsoft said, we're going to be good guys. If you have five or fewer developers and you license one of the team roles, we will provide a version of the server called Team Foundation Server Workgroup Edition that has a hard limit of five active users. So when it comes to licensing, you have to sit down and say, okay, what did I have and what do I need? People who had MSDN Universal were automatically upgraded if they didn't tell Microsoft what they wanted into the developer SKU. They got that as a free upgrade. You did not have to give them $5,000. It was your upgrade as long as your license was in effect at the time that they shipped uh, Visual Studio 2005. So unfortunately, licensing is complicated. Developers who want to use Team System, you have to break it down into server and client. For the server, you need at least one server license 
That also means, requires that you have a server license to run it on Windows Server 2003 or 2008. You need to have client access licenses for everybody who checks in code, who files and works with uh, work items, so that could be a scenario, uh, a task, etc. And you need to have, um, and you can use any development tools you want. That's what you need on the server. On the client, you can use Visual Studio Pro and use Team System, but you then have to buy a Cal separately. That gives you a license to access the server, and then you install a bit of software that comes with it called Team Explorer. Um, so the bottom line is you have a five-person team, you know, you're looking at, well, the work group mode is probably the most cost-effective. The minute you hit six, that means you have to buy a server and at least um, six cows, depending upon how you want to buy them. Man, this is not easy to do. Like, it's, it's daunting to get into this. Well, yeah. it, gets more, it gets more complicated, right? You throw in, say, you need a proxy server, you have remote teams, um, you look at your business analysts, yeah, it, it gets a little bit more complicated. Um, although... Martin, throw in some goodness out, because I've now toward the horrible part of the story. Tell what happened. I know. I, I feel like killing myself now. Man. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's like, <laughs> thanks, man. I mean, I've worked with a lot of people, and they get really, you know, it's like deers in the headlights when they see all this stuff as well. Um, <laughs> they just get frightened. Uh, a lot of companies I've worked with, bizarrely, already own the stuff anyway. You know what I mean? That's what they were surprised about, because um, they're already paying lots of MSCN licenses, and they've got lots of good license discounts with Microsoft as it is, you know, so they don't pay anywhere close to the retail numbers that Brian's saying there. Well, in 2008, they did introduce a small change to the licensing. I mean, Microsoft do listen to customers, you know, and they certainly heard a lot of moaning about this one. And um, So they made a small change where um, if you were, uh, say, if you people inside your company, so say you've got, you know, people who are using your application that you've developed internally, um, and you want them to be able to submit a bug or, you know, raise a feature request or something, they can do that directly um, against TFS, and they don't need a client access license anymore, provided that they're inside your organization and, um, you know, that they're only raising work items or looking at work items that they've raised. If they're a manager or somebody who wants to, you know, process all these work items inside of Excel or projects or something, then they need a client access license. But at least the ability to report a bug is available to anyone within the organization without buying a license for them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's useless to me because I work in an ISV and everyone's external to my organization. So I would need, again, we're talking server, you know. So Microsoft name convention, if it's server, then you pay for it. If it's services, it's free. This is a server, Team Foundation server. And like all the other server products, you can get what's called external connector licenses. You can get one of them SharePoint as well. Um, and that, that would enable you to uh, extend TFS outside of your organization. But then we talked earlier on about what TFS is good for. Everybody who wanted to connect into TFS, you would need to give them an, an Active Directory account or a Windows user account. And right. so, you know, do you really want to do that for everyone? So, it's, yeah. Yeah, and let's, let's, let's be clear about this license change. It. The, the intent is that you only use it for people to file bugs and track bugs. Now, some people might call it a defect, you know, an issue, whatever. Those are fine. The key is it's focused to that particular type of work item. If you get into things like a feature or a what we would call requirement or a scenario, they can't manage those. If they want to work with those, then they have to have a client access license. I'm not so sure about that, Paul. There you go. Even we don't know. About that. 
trust me. Whenever <laughs> we, uh, really, yeah. we, we have all these questions, and you know, you, we ask them on the like the discussion groups and stuff, and you you find even people inside Microsoft sort of scratching their head and going back and asking the guy that wrote the terms in the license and saying, "What does this mean?" <laughs> so it's not good. Yeah, we think sort Mr. Kevin Kelly told me so. Yeah, okay. Well, there you go. He's the guy that writes the license. So. Aren't we glad we did licensing? I'm so happy now. Yeah, yeah I'm I sure. I, I'm with Carl. I want to kill myself. I just, uh, <laughs> I'm feeling very depressed right now, actually. <laughs> you have to compare. One of the things, you, you, you know, you have to do your due diligence and look at how much money is this going to save, you know, my company by introducing. Um, and if it's not going to save you the money, then maybe you shouldn't buy it. You know, you know, this is the price they've set for it. Is it worth it? Make your own dis- make your own call. People are just so used to MSDN including everything, they just get a bit you know cross when it doesn't. The biggest question me, I'm sure Brian gets as well is, you know, why can't I find Team Foundation Server in my MSDN subscription? I can't download it. What's going on? And you know, it's because you have to pay for it. If we put it in MSDN, then you wouldn't buy it. Exactly. Yeah, and and that's really just we got really lazy with everything was in the MSDN Universal. We never had to think about it anymore, and and that that's now changed. Yeah. Uh, let's move off this lovely topic uh, over to the role of SharePoint in Team Foundation Server. What would you like to know, Richard? There's lots of things SharePoint can do for you. <laughs> what can SharePoint do? For so, what are people using SharePoint for in relation to Team Foundation Server? Um, well, so let's, let's 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 talk about SharePoint. What is included? What's not? Et cetera. So, in the box, you when you install Team Foundation Server, it wants to. And it really today, unfortunately, needs to have it. You don't really get a choice here. Okay. It needs access to SharePoint. Let me qualify what that means. SharePoint comes in two flavors. Windows SharePoint Services 3.0, the which free one. is a, well, it's free is a relative term, is a component of Windows Server 2003 and Windows Server 2008. Right. So there's licensing related to Windows, and we'll just leave that alone. We're not going to go back to licensing. <laughs> but the bottom line is you need a Windows Server 2003 or 2008 installation to run Team Foundation Server. So they said, look, because SharePoint is a part of it, we're going to use this as our initial portal technology. And so what happens is when you install Team Foundation Service, it says, hey, I either need to have an existing Windows SharePoint Services site, or I will install one for you. Footnote, by the way, if you have a Microsoft Office SharePoint Server 2007 installation, a.k.a. MOS, you can point me at that also. So it will use MOS, but that requires, of course, separate licensing, separate installation. The Windows SharePoint server site can be today on your TFS server, on specifically the application tier, or it can be a remote server now. In 2005, it was kind of cranky. It used version 2.0. 2008 is much better. It uses 3.0. It's a very happy thing. Now, the idea behind this was SharePoint was going to provide the initial web experience for Team Foundation server. So what it supports, for example, is using SharePoint's document library feature to store things like specs, for example. It provides a place for you to track lists um, that you want to share with business analysts, people who aren't going to run Visual Studio and who aren't going to drill down into features like the work item tracking system. Um, So that's what it was initially designed for. It even has hooks into reporting services so you could have reports show up there and other types of features. And, of course, you can do all the SharePoint goodness you want with it. Um, Funny enough, though, it was kind of... Uh, how should I say, um, anticlimactic because on the flip side, it did provide access to a lot of people things, 
people things wanted, like, well, I want to get a list of all the builds. I want to see the current build report status. Right. Or I want to be able to look at work items. Well, strangely enough, a third-party company that Microsoft acquired created a product called Team System Web Access. It was actually called Team Plane at the time. Microsoft bought that, so now you have two web interfaces. You have SharePoint, which provides SharePoint goodness, primarily document management. And then you have Team System Web Access, which gives you, well, web-based access to build data. You have access to all the work item types. And guess what? You even can access the SharePoint document libraries from Team System Web Access. Interesting. What's compelling about Team System Web Access is it's designed to support an extranet view, um, where SharePoint, you probably really wouldn't want to put out extranet, uh, where Team System Web Access does. Um, Martin, you want to throw any additional comments? No, I mean, yeah, the web access stuff's all, all great. I mean, you get full rewrite edit to, to work items. You can kick off builds. Um, you, you get a read-only view of source control. Um, but, no, it's it's very good. It would be nice to see it better integrated, you know, into the SharePoint portal side, and ho- hopefully that will come. Um, but it's good so far. Well, yeah, with the acquired company, they're just going to have to take some time to put those things together. Uh, what about yeah. the whole reporting side of, you know, the anal- the analytics of the uh, the projects? Is that all through SharePoint as well? Well, it's – so, no, it's not. So – this is, I think, one of the compelling features for an enterprise, right, or any type of organization that's looking to get better ROI out of their development teams, is Team Systems is unique in that it includes an integrated reporting subsystem. So first of all, you have two sets of databases you're working with. A set of databases for your online transaction processes, so check-ins, check-outs, builds, etc. Then behind the scenes, they've also created a data warehouse that's built into one of your favorite tools, Richard, SQL Server Analysis Services. Woohoo! Yeah. Exactly. And so what happens is, by default, there's this job that runs every hour that sucks data out of the production databases and puts them into the data warehouse through what's called an adapter. They have a whole architecture if you want to plug into it. And this data warehouse, then, is what a bunch of SQL Server reporting services reports are built on top of. When you install Team Foundation Server, they install a set of default reports based upon one of the two development methodologies you pick, Agile or CMMI. And those reports feed off the data warehouse. And, of course, you can then customize them. SharePoint, when you install WSS for Team System, includes a link to the reporting services subsite as well as to the reports you can link to. But the reports are rendered out of SSRS. Now, one of the things about reporting, um, while you go, woohoo, Richard, when you hear you know, uh, SQLs in there, um, a lot of people who are doing the, pros, you know, the source control management and the work item stuff... Um, right. They don't understand how to do reports and things yet. You know, that's another thing they have to learn is to go how write um, business reports and things. So I found that um, to get people started, especially project managers, um, showing them how to point Excel at a at a cube is a really good, you know, way of getting started into data warehousing. And you can go and look at the facts and play with them inside your little spreadsheet first before passing it to a real developer who knows how to write, you know, proper. SQL Server reports, and to turn that into something you want automatically done all the time. Well, and the neat thing, once you give them that uh, cross-tab view, is now they can slice and dice the information themselves, which may or may not have them find anything useful, but it'll keep them busy for hours. Yeah, that's the great thing about Team System, because it tracks all the data, and the the manager stops saying, are you done yet, are you done yet, and can just play with the data to the heart's content. They can convince themselves it's going to be on time. 
Well, yeah, they can certainly or or find as many problems as they want to find. That's the great thing about slicing up data like that is you can you could pretty much support any case you want. Exactly. Yeah, you can. I mean, you, you do find some interesting stuff as well. You know, it's great for um, spotting if people are thrashing on a problem and things because you can really quickly tell if somebody's not checked something in or you know if builds aren't happening that sort of thing. You can spot those really quickly, and you know. The developers say we're 80% done. They've been telling us that for the past week. How many bugs have we got left? Do we keep getting new bugs? You know, uh, are bugs getting closed? You can just go and see all that data in real time. And you can give those reports to your customers as well. They can go look for themselves in real time as well, which really increases the transparency. What's interesting is, you know, this loops back to what we were talking about earlier with Build, though. Some of the reports, like one of the quality reports, is where it takes a lot of different data and brings it together into one report is driven by having builds. So if you're using builds, you get this great benefit of correlating, tracking work items and tests to builds. You can see this overall quality metric. You get things like code coverage statistics. You get code churn statistics, which for me is a big one, right? If you're getting to the end of an iteration and you should be you know, locking things down, you should not see any major code churn spikes. Because if you do, that means something random happens. Someone either modified a huge chunk of code, screwed up something, I mean, those are things that really can grab your attention, not to mention just, you know, number of bugs open, number of bugs filed, et cetera. Definitely. I mean, the idea of looking at the aggregate data of a project to give a sense of its stability or its progress is very interesting to me. It gets even cooler when you start talking about uh, cross versions. If I've got a long life product, probably an internal product, it's five, six, seven versions in to sort of get a sense of the momentum of that evolution over time. Are we increasing a rate of feature development, decreasing the number of bugs per feature, that, that sort of sense? I think those are really tough stats to capture today in most tools. Yeah, one, one of my favorite things, I mean, because we do... We do the cross-platform stuff. So TFS stores not only you know Visual Studio Code, but can store code from Eclipse and things like that. Um, and then you can get the idea of you have a requirement. Um, how much work did that end up generating? You know, in in every part of my software company, not just say the ASP.NET front end, but how much work happened? You know, in the Java back end or the the mainframe? You know, and really look at how much it cost you. Yeah, actually being able to assign the total cost, just post facto, I didn't even want to project it, but actual cost of a feature. Yeah, exactly. That's a, Right now, that's a very tough number to derive. Yeah. So obviously we have some work to do going forward. Like, this is not the last version of Team System. We're at version two. Yeah, we're far from it. The The next big release has been codenamed Rosario for a while, though it looks like Microsoft is going away from interesting code names because other products are now using just numerical monikers. Um, but yeah, the, the preview release that's out shows a lot of their, their thinking that they're looking at. Plus, I think they've got a bunch of stuff that they haven't pulled back the kimono on. Yeah, so much of Rosario has felt like we're finally going to get a great version of the Architect Edition, but there's so many other things that could be going on in there. So on the client, obviously, we're going to see some big enhancements. Let's start with Datadude. Um, one of the big things that Microsoft has announced, and this was shown at TechEd, is that while it's fantastic that I can use Datadude with SQL Server, you know, there's other database products out there. You know, there's this one that starts with an O, this one that starts with a D, you Don't know, like the Oracle DB2. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so Microsoft, the first thing to understand is that in their effort to get the first release of Datadude out the door, they made some architectural compromises. The bottom line was that they made the tool very 
incestuous with SQL Server. In fact, to use DataDude today, you have to have a local copy of SQL Server installed because it uses it for a lot of its design time validation. One of the big changes they're making to DataDude architecturally is that they have a new data provider model, which means they will be able to support third-party databases. In other words, not anything beyond SQL Server. To make that even more compelling, at TechEd, IBM was up on stage and showed, actually, IBM wasn't on stage, it was Brian Harry doing the demo, but they showed DB2 working with DataDude. That's pretty exciting. Yeah, so they haven't announced, DB2 is the only one they've announced, and particularly because Microsoft will not speak for other partners. But because of the way the architecture is designed, I'd be highly surprised if we didn't see something beyond DB2 when Rosario ships. Because hmm. um, if you can do them, two databases, you can do ten. Yeah, exactly. Once they've got the second one, it's, it's, it's open. It's just, at this point, Microsoft's just doing the plumbing. If Oracle, MySQL, any of those guys want to see their stuff in there, they're going to have, probably have to do some work, particularly if they want to provide a compelling experience um, because Microsoft's going to focus on the engine and then making the SQL Server experience great. DB2, Oracle, those vendors who work with that will have to provide a great experience also, but they'll be able to do it now, which will be compelling to have the same environment to manage my databases. What I'm really excited about there, Brian, on the on the data database pro edition, is the fact that this is you know Microsoft build platforms, and they're going to provide examples as to how to do those things. So the, they've publicly stated that they're going to ship a, a SQL Express you know example of connecting to a database and things like that. So that if you're talking to say one of the open source databases, then you know there is a possibility for a community project around that as well. That's cool. I'm glad you said that because I have to be. I never know what I can talk about, so I'm very careful what I say. <laughs> yeah, I know. And you, yeah, I've got that written down in public form. Okay, good. Um, so without uh, pulling back the comment on anything we're not supposed to, um, moving into the developer SKU, they've shown um, this feature they call debugger on a stick. So you, choose, you can basically huh. take a USB stick up to a production machine uh. and be able to debug it with a lot of the great Visual Studio tools. Uh, without impacting the local system. You can even do it with an ISO file with a CD. That's going to be really cool. Wow. They have this feature called, um, I think they codenamed it, I think the codename was Proteus, that does application recording. And so what it can do is it lets you play back the, the execution stack so you can help find bugs and fix them. Um, that's in the CTPs right now. And then in the test queue, um, this is going to be huge. They're, one of their pillars of, of Rosario is they are building serious tester tools. So there's a new test client written in WPF. So if you're a, really a tester, see, one of the problems with the test tools today is that it appeals to people like you and me, Richard, and, and, and Carl and, and Martin, and that they're well, what Microsoft calls an SDET, a software development engineer test. Someone right. who is more of a programmer but also does hardcore testing. There's this whole world of testers out there that they really are developers, but they do really good testing. Yes. And so this new test client um, that's codenamed Kameno is a dedicated UI for doing test case management. Mm. And one of the things that we've been dying for is we'll actually be able to record and play back Windows applications, not just web applications. Right, right. Um, and it also is really cool because the tester, when doing a manual test, for example, can turn on the video recorder and this will attach a video to the bug so the developer can see exactly what happened when the tester went through it. Nice. They don't have to just read the test report. I mean, this is just kick-butt stuff. Um, and PDC, I know, is going to be a big coming-out party because they've already got, I think, six or seven talks scheduled for PDC. Um, so I think this fall is really going to shed light on what is going to be the Rosario VSTS release 
and what that means for us. And then hopefully they'll start talking about when we can have it, because right now it's that nebulous, we'll ship it when it's ready statement. Mm. Real um, soon Martin, now. why don't you talk about the server, because I left out all the good server goodness. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the server goodness, I think, you know, there's more stuff coming in P- PDC. Um, but the things that are, they've already talked about are, um, we, you know, Richard, we talked about earlier about tracking the cost of a feature. Yes. Um, one of the problems in the current iteration is that links between work items, they're bi-directional. You know, you can just say a, a feature is linked to a bug, but you can't say who's the parent and the child in that right. relationship currently. In Rosario, hierarchical work items are in there. Um, so you can do all those sorts of things, you know, and track back and automatically do reports and stuff. Um, one of, and again, this is all driven from their internal adoption. One of the um, biggest customers, you know, that they wanted to get on board was the office team, and so you know they found the needed hierarchical work items. So that's been in from quite an early stage. In terms of um, version control and, and generally in the server, there's been a lot of performance improvements going on while. While we talk about Team System being V2 at the minute, you know, and we all want to get to that magical V3, um, Team Foundation Server, it would probably be unfair to call it a V2. You know, it's probably a, a V2.9 or maybe even a V3 because it's, it's been around, parts of it anyway, have definitely been around for a long time inside Microsoft. So Team Foundation Server is already very stable and very secure. They are doing some performance stuff, but I don't know about you, Brian, it, if, you, if you're hitting the bumps in performance on TFS, then you're probably as big as Microsoft, in which case you're probably IBM. <laughs> so you probably don't need to, you know, it already outperforms most organizations I've worked in. Oh, absolutely. No, I would say there's, you know, when people see the numbers that Microsoft posts about the performance you get at TFS today with the right hardware, you know, everybody's like, oh, I think we're okay. I don't think we're going to have trouble um, with the number of users, the number of work items and things. I mean, there's very few companies, and I haven't had any customer who said, oh, this will not perform for us. Yeah, no, if it's giga, you know, gigabytes and millions of, you know, millions and billions of versions and millions of work items, and it's just, it's just crazy stuff. I've worked on projects, you know, cost millions of dollars, you know, government projects for millions of dollars that have lasted several years, and the source fit on a floppy disk. You know what I mean? This is a... Yeah, crazy stuff. Um, they're doing a lot of work in the build area that that's in the current CTP. You can see that. So, um, again, oh, but build. Oh, workflow integration with build. That's it. Yeah, that's in the current version. So, build is something that we, you know, like because we get to hack around the bits of XML. And being a Java guy, you know, I'm, I'm in seventh heaven if you give me a, some angle brackets to play with. That's fantastic. That's easier <laughs> than what I normally do. The, um, they're trying to make build a bit more easier to visualize uh, and visualization across the board, but build especially to visualize so that you can um, do builds without being necessarily a programmer, but being more like the build person, you know. So, uh, And they're talking about integrating that with Windows workflow rather than, um, rather than pure MS build, which it is currently. And then finally on version control side, I mentioned visualization. There's been, and I'll talk about some of the visualization tools that they're going to bring in to make it easier to, um, you know, walk into a company and see what their branching structure is, uh, look at a file and be able to tell, has this, you know, what's been merged into this particular file, where has it come from, uh, those sorts of things. Um, in terms of performance, the actual server, that's fine. They're just, you know, this is all sugar in the clients that they're building on top of it to make it easier to talk to. Well, I think that's a show. I think so. Always a pleasure to talk to you guys. 
Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you Mr. Randall, Mr. Woodward. Until next time, we'll see you around. Thank you. Okay. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a